Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello, I'm Claire Balding, here to introduce this episode of the Penguin Podcast, where you'll be taken on a literary odyssey around the world. But don't worry, you won't actually have to leave your seat. Are all you penguins packed? Have you remembered your toothbrush, sunscreen, passport, and most importantly, your holiday read? Good. Now let's get going. This summer, it's all about the journey rather than the destination. As Ernest Hemingway said, it's good to have an end to journey towards, but it's the journey that matters in the end. This is something I'm in complete agreement with. In my new book, coming out later this year, I write about my experiences and the joys of walking around Britain, the people I meet, the spectacular countryside, the occasionally awful rain and the rich pleasure of being outdoors, taking time to earth yourself. There's a deep delight in merely journeying, in the pure action of moving towards somewhere. But some journeys, no matter how long or short, need entertainment to make the minutes, hours or even days pass by. It might be a playlist of your favourite tunes, a backlog of movies and TV shows you've lined up to watch, a conversation with a friend, or, as I've found in the past, a total stranger. But what could be better than a good audiobook to keep you company? That's what the lovely people at Penguin thought. So they've created a literary path around the world. And to beguile your travelling time, they found the perfect audio companions. A short hop? Choose from a selection of classic short stories. Long train trip? Try a compelling novel. So sit back, fasten your seatbelt, and prepare to be taken from continent to continent with an introduction to one of Penguin's chosen journeys, tasters from the audiobooks, and some hot travel tips from Rough Guide's travel expert, Rachel Mills. Over to Captain Roy McMillan, your pilot on this epic journey. Hello, everybody, and welcome aboard this Penguin podcast, Flight 4277. You know, I'll tell you what, I'm going to drop that particular metaphor and my hands from my nose. First stop, Europe. And our literary journey is from John Green's The Fault in Our Stars, where its protagonists, Hazel and Augustus, travel from Indianapolis to Amsterdam to meet their favourite author, Peter Van Houten. I bet you say that to all the boys who finance your international travel. For this journey, which we've estimated to be around 11 hours, plus a couple of extra hours when you're waiting in the airport, we suggest Quiet by Susan Kane and a few episodes of the Penguin podcast to keep you entertained. We'll soon play you a short clip, but first, here's Rachel Mills's introduction to Europe. Europe. A potent mix of culture, landscape and history. Europe is an endlessly fascinating continent. From London's Royal Parks and Amsterdam's canals, to Istanbul's Grand Bazaar and Germany's Berlin Wall, just getting tangled up in the sights is a huge draw. Europe offers the traveller more architecture, music, fashion, theatre and gastronomy per square kilometre than any other continent. I had always imagined Rosa Parks as a stately woman with a bold temperament someone who could easily stand up to a busload of glowering passengers. But when she died in 2005 at the age of 92, the flood of obituaries recalled her as soft-spoken, sweet, and small in stature. They said she was timid and shy, but had 
the courage of a lion. They were full of phrases like radical humility and quiet fortitude. What does it mean to be quiet and have fortitude, these descriptions asked implicitly. How could you be shy and courageous? Parks herself seemed aware of this paradox, calling her autobiography Quiet Strength, a title that challenges us to question our assumptions. Why shouldn't quiet be strong? And what else can quiet do that we don't give it credit for? Our lives are shaped as profoundly by personality as by gender or race. And the single most important aspect of personality, the north and south of temperament, as one scientist puts it, is where we fall on the introvert-extrovert spectrum. Our place on this continuum influences our choice of friends and mates and how we make conversation, resolve differences, and show love. It affects the careers we choose and whether or not we succeed at them. It governs how likely we are to exercise, commit adultery, function well without sleep, learn from our mistakes, place big bets in the stock market, delay gratification, be a good leader, and ask, what if? That was an extract from Quiet by Susan Cain. Back across the pond we go to South America to journey from Mexico to San Antonio. In Laura Esquivel's book, Like Water for Chocolate, the tyrannical mother forces her daughter Rosaura to make this journey with her husband Pedro to separate him from the true love of his life, the youngest daughter, Tita. Unquestionably, when it came to dividing, dismantling, dismembering, desolating, detaching, dispossessing, destroying or dominating, Mama Elena was a pro. It's exactly two hours and seven minutes from Mexico to San Antonio, which makes Bloody Valentine by James Patterson the perfect audiobook companion. But first, here's a very brief background guide to South America. South America. From the palm-smothered beaches of the Caribbean to the wild and windswept archipelago of Tierra del Fuego, South America is a dizzying trove of landscapes, legendary cities and ancient ruins. Explore the elegant cities of Colombia, soak up the Aymara culture in Bolivia, chill on a white sand Brazilian beach, or for urbanites, the continent's alluring cities offer a clash of congestion, coastal vistas, fantastic salsa and samba clubs, and football, the beautiful game. The figure, dressed in black, lying on the bed, believed it. The killing, that had taken so much planning, would benefit more people than it would hurt so it wouldn't be murder. The killer listened to the faint roar of London traffic that the triple-glazed windows failed to mute and watched the figures change on the digital clock. 2 a.m. 2.01 a.m. 2.03 a.m. 2.04 a.m. The click of the clock and the distant steady breathing were the only sounds apart from the traffic. The sleeping pills in the bedtime drink had worked. No one else was awake. At 2.10am, the night porter, Damien Clark, would pocket the intercom receiver. He'd leave the foyer and take his break in his studio flat in the basement. His routine hadn't varied in the six weeks that the killer had watched him. The cameras would record, but Damien wouldn't be watching the screens above the porter's desk. It was the perfect time. 
With care, there'd be nothing to be seen on the tapes, because the killer knew the exact angle of the cameras, where they recorded and where they didn't. Damien's absence was an extra safety measure. The street doors were locked. No one could enter Barnes' building without summoning Damien on the intercom, and who was going to call between two and three in the morning? No resident could enter one apartment from another unless they had the master key code. The day porter, Ted, had been stupid. When he'd been given the job three months ago, he'd written down the code and left it on a notepad on the desk. At 2.10am, the figure rose from the bed and glanced in the mirror. All that could be seen was a black shadow in the darkness. The only glimpse of colour was in the eyes, shining through the slits in the ski mask. Thin latex gloves were snapped on. The pencil torch was in the trouser pocket. The bag packed. Time to go. The layout was the same in all the apartments, except the penthouse. The front door opened into a hall. There was a kitchen on the left, a living room that opened onto a balcony straight ahead, bedrooms and bathrooms on the right. Snuffles and heavy breathing came from behind the second bedroom door. The killer listened at the outer door before opening it and creeping out into the corridor. An extract from Bloody Valentine by James Patterson, read by Stephen Pacey. Next, we head back north, through Central America, across the US border, and into North America, and further up than just that. Here we meet an 18th century man who has travelled from his tiny village in Wales to Baltimore in search of the last Welsh-speaking Native American tribe in North America. It sounds like fiction, but this is the true story of Griff Rees's ancestor, John Evans, which he captured in his book, American Interior. American Interior the quixotic journey of John Evans, his search for a lost tribe, and how, filled by fantasy and possibly booze, he accidentally annexed a third of North America. When John Evans spent the summer of 1792 in London, it coincided with Austrian composer Joseph Haydn's visit to the city to premiere his symphony number no. 97 in C major. It's unlikely that Evans was there, but certainly not impossible. However, it's another Hayden who is partly responsible for my intercontinental stalking of John Evans's chateau. I first met Hayden in Detroit in 1999. He had driven heroically for six hours to come to a super furry animal show at the Magic Stick, a bowling alley with a concert venue upstairs, next door to the hall where Houdini played his last trick. The famed escape artist died of peritonitis in a hospital across the road, having successfully freed himself from a straitjacket of chains whilst immersed in a glass tank of water. The janitor took me to see the very spot. A passionate young man, Hayden had gathered a group of exiled Welsh youngsters together for a road trip to see the compatriots. He had come to America on a soccer scholarship to play for Rio Grande University, Ohio. Over the years, he would turn up at shows as far afield as New York, Cleveland and Atlanta. Conversations would usually turn to John Evans. Hayden had hit on a shared obsession. He was certainly the first person I met who wanted to recreate Evans's journey, although I think Hayden wanted to do it solely by boat. Beers were drunk and ideas hatched. 
Every time we toured the US, which was around twice a year at the turn of the century, Hayden would plead, you have to visit Rio Grande, you won't believe it. I certainly didn't, but now I do. It's 16 hours and 11 minutes from Wales to Baltimore, which gives you plenty of time to put on your headphones and listen to the words of another rock star in Morrissey's autobiography. But before that, here are some words of wisdom on travelling to and in North America. North America. A typical American experience is impossible to describe. Whether you're exploring the mighty Rockies or spectacular Cascades, cruising the Great Lakes, getting lost in the vast wilderness of Alaska, standing in awe at the Grand Canyon or shopping in the heart of New York City. North America is diverse, challenging, beguiling, entertaining and always changing. My childhood is streets upon streets upon streets upon streets. Streets to define you and streets to confine you, with no sign of motorway, freeway or highway. Somewhere beyond hides the treat of the countryside, for hourless days when rains and rains lift, permitting us to be amongst people who live surrounded by space and are irked by our faces. Until then, we live in forgotten Victorian knife-plunging Manchester, where everything lies wherever it was left over a hundred years ago. The safe streets are dimly lit, the others not lit at all. But both represent a danger that you're asking for, should you find yourself out there once curtains have closed for tea. Past places of dread, we walk in the centre of the road, looking up at the torn wallpapers of brownie blacks and purples as the mournful remains of derelict shoulder-to-shoulder houses, their safety now replaced by trepidation. An extract from Morrissey's autobiography, read by David Morrissey. Time now to shoot forward 14 time zones across the Pacific Ocean to Australia, where popular author Leanne Moriarty resides. In her book, The Husband's Secret, Tess O'Leary leaves Melbourne with her son to stay with her mum in Sydney after discovering a heartbreaking revelation. Could she really do it? Take Liam to Sydney and send him to her old primary school? It felt impossible, like she was trying to send him back through time to her childhood. For a moment she felt dizzy again. This wasn't happening. Of course she couldn't take Liam out of school. His sea creature project was due on Friday. He had little athletics on Saturday. She had a load of washing ready to go on the line and a potential new client to see first thing tomorrow morning. This is one of the shorter penguin journeys at one hour and 25 minutes, which is just enough time to listen to the last act, one of Roald Dahl's brilliant short stories. As always, some information on Australia for anyone travelling there this summer first. Australia and Oceania. Australia and Oceania, which includes New Zealand and the thousands of islands scattered across the South and Central Pacific Ocean, is as diverse as it is vast. The landscape offers deserts, fjords, volcanoes, glaciers, tropical rainforest, white sand beaches and coral reefs, and is world famous for diving, surfing and fishing. Millions of travellers visit the cosmopolitan cities in Australia and New Zealand each year, and the more intrepid head out to far-flung Paradise Islands. Anna was in the kitchen washing a head of Boston lettuce for the family supper when the doorbell rang. The bell itself was on the wall directly above the sink, and it never failed to make her jump if it rang when she happened to be near. For this reason, neither her husband nor any of the children ever used it. It seemed to ring extra loud this time, and Anna jumped extra high. 
When she opened the door, two policemen were standing outside. They looked at her out of pale, waxen faces, and she looked back at them, waiting for them to say something. She kept looking at them, but they didn't speak or move. They stood so still and so rigid that they were like two wax figures somebody had put on her doorstep as a joke. Each of them was holding his helmet in front of him in his two hands. What is it? Anna asked. They were both young, and they were wearing leather gauntlets up to their elbows. She could see their enormous motorcycles propped up along the edge of the sidewalk behind them, and dead leaves were falling around the motorcycles and blowing along the sidewalk, and the whole of the street was brilliant in the yellow light of a clear, gusty September evening. The taller of the two policemen shifted uneasily on his feet. Then he said quietly, Are you Mrs. Cooper, ma'am? Yes, I am. The other said, Mrs. Edmund J. Cooper. Yes. And then slowly it began to dawn upon her that these men, neither of whom seemed anxious to explain his presence, would not be behaving as they were unless they had some distasteful duty to perform. Mrs. Cooper, she heard one of them saying, and from the way he said it, as gently and softly as if he were comforting a sick child, she knew at once that he was going to tell her something terrible. A great wave of panic came over her, and she said, What happened? We have to inform you, Mrs. Cooper. The policeman paused, and the woman watching him felt as though her whole body were shrinking and shrinking and shrinking inside its skin. That your husband was involved in an accident on the Hudson River Parkway at approximately 5.45 this evening and died in the ambulance. An extract from The Last Act by Roald Dahl, read by Gillian Anderson. Our journey to the African continent follows Marlowe's journey from Brussels to the Congo in Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. Now, when I was a little chap, I had a passion for maps. I would look for hours at South America or Africa or Australia and lose myself in all the glories of exploration. At that time, there were many blank spaces on the earth. And when I saw one, that looked particularly inviting on a map. But they all looked that. I'll put my finger on it and say, when I grow up, I will go there. This is The Longest Journey, which we're featuring in today's podcast. It lasts 18 hours and 45 minutes, so you'll need something epic to make this one pass by. Well, we have just the thing for it. Birdsong by Sebastian Falks, set during World War I, is so crammed of drama and suspense that you'll be thankful for the lack of interruptions in your travelling. But back to the African continent with Rachel Mills. Africa. Africa presents a myriad of sights, sounds and experiences to draw you into the continent. As well as the overwhelming Arab hospitality in the north, the unmissable wildlife and landscapes of sub-Saharan Africa and the infectious and inspiring music of West Africa, travellers will be stunned by the continent's dramatic southern coast. There was a formidable front door with iron facings on the timber. Inside, the house was both smaller and larger than it looked. It had no rooms of intimidating grandeur, no gilt ballrooms with dripping chandeliers. 
yet it had unexpected spaces and corridors that disclosed new corners with steps down into the gardens. There were small salons equipped with writing desks and tapestry-covered chairs that opened inwards from unregarded passageways. Even from the end of the lawn it was difficult to see how the rooms and corridors were fitted into the placid rectangles of stone. Throughout the building the floors made distinctive sounds beneath the press of feet, so that with its closed angles and echoing air the house was always a place of unseen footsteps. Stephen Raceford's metal trunk had been sent ahead and was waiting at the foot of the bed. He unpacked his clothes and hung his spare suit in the giant carved wardrobe. There was an enamel washbowl and wooden towel rail beneath the window. He had to stand on tiptoe to look out over the boulevard where a cab was waiting on the other side of the street, the horse shaking its harness and reaching up its neck to nibble at the branches of a lime tree. He tested the resilience of the bed, then lay down on it, resting his head on the concealed bolster. The room was simple, but had been decorated with some care. There was a vase of blue peonies on the table and two prints of street scenes in enfleur on either side of the door. It was a spring evening with a late sun in the sky beyond the cathedral and the sound of blackbirds from either side of the house. Stephen washed perfunctorily and tried to flatten his black hair in the small looking-glass. He placed half a dozen cigarettes in a metal case which he tucked inside his jacket. He emptied his pockets of items he no longer needed, railway tickets, a blue leather notebook and a knife with a single, scrupulously sharpened blade. He went downstairs to dinner, startled by the sound of his steps on the two staircases that took him to the landing of the first floor and the family bedrooms, and thence down to the hall. He felt hot beneath his waistcoat and jacket. He stood for a moment, disorientated, unsure which of the four glass-panelled doors that opened off the hall was the one through which he was supposed to go. He half-opened one and found himself looking into a steam-filled kitchen, in the middle of which a maid was loading plates onto a tray on a large deal table. "'This way, monsieur. Dinner is served,' said the maid, squeezing past him in the doorway. An extract from Birdsong by Sebastian Foulkes, read by Samuel West. The final stop of our global voyage takes us to Asia, the largest continent in the world, covering 17 million square miles and a total population of 4 billion. Even journeys between two countries can take over half a day, which is the case in our chosen literary journey. In Rudyard Kipling's book Kim, its protagonist, of the same name, encounters Teshu Lama, a Tibetan Buddhist monk in Lahore, who is in search of the river of life. Kim embarks on many spiritual adventures and life-affirming journeys in the South Asian subcontinent, but it is the Lama's goal to reach Benares, now known as Varanasi. This is a brief life, but in its brevity it offers us some splendid moments, some meaningful adventures. It's another long journey from Lahore to Varanasi, so we suggest The Strangler Vine by M.J. Carter for the 12 hours and 50 minutes journey. Before that, though, Here's Rachel Mills one last time with a short overview of Asia. Asia. With its tempting mix of volcanoes, rainforest, rice fields, beaches and coral reefs, Asia is one of the world's most stimulating and accessible regions for independent travel. You can spend the day exploring thousand-year-old Hindu ruins and the night at a rave on the beach, attend a Buddhist almsgiving ceremony at dawn and go whitewater rafting in the afternoon. Chill out in a bamboo beach hut one week and hike through the jungle looking for orangutans the next.
At the edge of Jabalpur, two sentries carrying muskets and wearing jackets the colour of dust eyed us suspiciously as Blake asked for directions to the Thuggy Bureau. I had rarely felt such relief in arriving anywhere, so I ignored their stony glances and looked about us as we rode into the cantonment. It was immediately evident that the place was exceptionally neat and well-ordered, from the freshly gravelled road lined with coconut and toddy palms to the small barracks and parade ground, to the humming bazaar, where shopkeepers were beginning to lay out their wares and the natives about their daily chores stopped to gaze at our grisly cargo. Our gloomy escorts led us to a sprawling collection of whitewashed cottages joined haphazardly together. A long veranda was crowded with servants and sepoys, who craned to look but did not approach. After a few minutes, a short, dark-haired man, dressed in the same grey-brown material as the sepoys, hurried out of the doorway and down the steps. When he saw us, he started. The sepoy says you were asking for the Thuggy Bureau, he said, surveying us. What is that you want? We were attacked on the Mirzapur Road, about two hours' ride back, Blake said. There were four of them. My assistant dispatched two, but was wounded, and is in need of care and rest. I turned to stare at Blake and tried to hide my surprise. It would be no exaggeration to say that he was a different man. The edges had been brushed off his voice. It was filled with authority. He even sat on his horse differently. Another of our party was killed and requires burial. We have brought the bodies of our assailants since we assumed the thuggy department would wish to inspect them. Well, I'm afraid you cannot come into the thuggy bureau, the man said, looking us over with an expression of distaste. It must be admitted that we were not impressive. We were dusty, somewhat creased around the edges, and possibly a little malodorous. What is your name, sir? said Blake sharply. A Captain James Perslow, assistant superintendent of the thuggy bureau, the man said. There was something slightly petulant about his manner, though he looked to me a good ten years older than I. A captain, eh? said Blake. The man squirmed uncomfortably under his gaze. Captain Perslow, I have come seven hundred miles all the way from Calcutta in three weeks to see Major Sleeman. I have letters of introduction from Government House. I have three bodies and a wounded man. I want accommodation, medical attention for my assistant, and to bury our Mohammedan companion, according to his traditional rites within the day. I hope that is not too much for you. Captain Perslow pulled himself up and squared his shoulders. Yes, sir. An extract from the audiobook edition of The Strangler Vine by M.J. Carter. And that's it from the Penguin Podcast. Us penguins are on the road all summer, and you can follow the hashtag Penguin Journeys to find out where we go and who's joining us along the way. Head over to our Pinterest, Facebook and Twitter channels for more. And if you want to hear more about other literary journeys, subscribe to the Penguin Podcast on iTunes and have a listen to our Great Journeys podcast featuring a special performance from Griff Rees. For more information about the books and authors featured in this episode, visit the website thepenguinpodcast.co.uk and if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email us at podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or find us on Twitter at Penguin Podcast. We finished this episode with a quote from Terry Pratchett from his book A Hat Full of Sky, which perfectly sums up the reasons for travelling. Why do you go away? So that you can come back. 
so that you can see the place you came from with new eyes and extra colours. And the people there see you differently too. Coming back to where you started is not the same as never leaving. Goodbye. You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.